Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. Today's guest on the show is Daniela Moroz. Daniela is a six-time, consecutive six-time champion, world champion in kite racing on foil. Um, that is an unbelievable feat right there. Four-time Rolex Yachtswoman of the Year uh, and a whole bunch of other accolades. She is also an avid wing and surf foiler. And I think we decided on the show that she might have of everyone who's been on the show, more time on foil than anyone else. Uh, she started foiling 10 years ago. Actually was testing Mike's Lab's first foils. You should tell that story on the show. So um, there is an incredible amount of knowledge and inspiration in this one. And the big uh, topic, I guess, is that the 2024 Olympics in Paris are going to be the first Olympics that have um, kite foil racing as a discipline. And she is currently on in uh, a campaign to make the Olympic team. Um, so should know by August and we go into, you know, training and mindset and all, all sorts of fun stuff, along with lots of foil conversation and discussion about foiling at those speeds. You know, you're talking about high 30 knots on foil that is going really fast. So I want to say I apologize for the delay in episodes. You know, I'm I'm going to be back on the weekly schedule um, with the release of the progression foil. I only have so much time I can spend on foiling a week, and the progression foil has been eating that time for the last few weeks. So I apologize, but I am also so stoked at what how the project has gone and everything about the release and March 1st you can pre-order April delivery for the progression foils so that's just unbelievable and a couple things that you know on the testing front that I've thought has been really interesting lately is that I have gone back to so Unifoil makes three fuse lengths um, a short I think it's 27 a 33 and I think a 39 and that's an extension off of what is already there and so I don't know what they come out to at the end but I, I'm a I love the medium fuse that's what I've been on majority of the time and you know I got the long fuse and tested it and didn't didn't love it at all you know right away it just felt so locked into me that you know I, I gave it a few days on on the super long fuse put it away and, and really hadn't been back well my dumbass the other day got the Katie Marlin tail, which is a really good tail, I should say, and took it out. My buddy Gary came down with a ski, and it was a really flat day, and so we just started just running through gear testing the tail, and so I put it on all the different wings I'm riding and um, pumping around and whatnot, and so I was on this one larger proto, and I'm pumping around. It's probably the fourth change, so I was running up to the beach, changing it out, trying to be quick because he's sitting there you know, on the ski just waiting and come back out and on my second whip and it's pretty cool like how i do it like um get up feel it out and then pump and i'll have the ski kind of mirror my speed and 
I'll get as close to stall as I can, figure out what that speed is, and then I'll see how quickly I can accelerate it up and see what that top speed is. So I have, you know, some data on how the foil and, and tail are working together. And so I have a lot of that data and, and I think it's a cool thing. If you've got a ski, check out how fast you're pumping. You know, one of the foils I was pumping at 17 miles an hour, which is kind of insane. You know, that's a, that's a pretty quick speed right there. But so I'm on a, a bigger foil, just pumping around. And all of a sudden, the weirdest feel I've ever had on a foil happens. Um, it drops out and then just shoots back up and actually like messed up my toes. I had black and blue toe for a couple days from it. But I knew something was super wrong. I thought I hit something at first. I was like, what in the world did I hit? I flip it over and I forgot to put in the bolt in the fuse. And I lost my medium fuse and I lost a tail that had come less than 24 hours before. <laughs> so, damn it. So, that made me go back and ride the long fuse a little bit more. And what I have found is if you go with a small enough tail on the long fuse, and I'm talking like pretty small tails, you get back a lot of the maneuverability but it extends and makes everything so buttery. And so I hadn't been thinking about um I hadn't been thinking about using the long fuse in the surf, but now after, you know, kind of being stuck on it cuz I don't really like the short fuse. The short fuse everything's just I, I don't know, there's too much pitch involved for how I like to run my tails and the efficiency. I mean, you can get the pitch out with a little more tail shim, but um on the long fuse with such a small tail, I am getting incredible feels and then it's extending pump. Like I did a downwinder the other night in nine to 12 miles an hour, uh, just right before dark. I'd say downwinder was almost like glassy out there. And it was like, I don't know, two foot at three seconds, something like that. And the cardio factor was so much lower. Um, unbelievable. Just like a little quick, like two and a half mile run. And, you know, I've just been coming in laughing a lot. And so I love that. I love that when something you have a, a I, I don't know, a, a conception about something, a preconceived notion about how something would go and then first feels, you know, fall into that, you know, with the bigger tail. It was exactly what I thought a long fuse would feel like. And then now going to really small tails, it's just kind of like unlocked something. And so I love it when you have a blind spot, you're wrong and, and fate lets you see it in a different way. And now all of a sudden you're loving something. So that's amazing and super fun i hope everybody is uh, out there is scoring good surf right now and we've got a little flat run but it's like 85 degrees in florida which is amazing and i can't wait for us to get some surf back but um all right enjoy this conversation with daniela i hope everyone is wonderful and thank you guys for tuning in Daniela, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm stoked too. You know, I didn't know much about you. And then I started pinging the audience for potential guests. And your name came up like a number of times, which was really cool. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just stoked. It's so cool when you can kind of crowdsource these things. And then I kind of did a, a dive a little bit on, on everything that you've accomplished. And... Wow, like unbelievable. 
<laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's cool that we have such a small community in the foiling world and everyone kind of knows everyone. So I'm honored that my name came up. That's okay. awesome. <laughs> um, can you start, for folks who don't know who you are, give a brief background, and then I want to dive into all sorts of cool stuff on the technical aspects of speed and foiling and just your commitment to pursue your dream, like all of that meat, but, but kind of start with who you are, how you got to this place. Yeah. So, um, I'm basically, I am from the San Francisco Bay area, um, born and raised here. And now I am a professional kiteboarder. Um, and I specifically do kite foil racing, which is the discipline that's going to be in the Olympics in 2024. So right now I'm completely just full-time focusing on training and preparing for that. Um, and I also have done a little bit of sailing. So I was on the U S sail GP team. Um, and yeah, I basically, I was just kind of involved in kiteboarding as a sport at just the right place in the right time when everyone was kind of changing over to foiling and when all the racers were beginning to um, learn to foil. So I kind of hopped on that bandwagon and that was in like, I want to say like 2013, 14. Um, so I've been foiling for almost 10 years now, which is pretty crazy. Um, but it's so much fun and I'm super addicted to it as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, and I started competing when I was like 13 or so. Um, and since then I've won six consecutive world championships. So I won in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, not in 2020 because there wasn't a world championships then. And then 2021 and 2022. Um, and I've also been awarded Rolex us yachtswoman of the year on four different occasions. So that was 2016, 2019, 2021, and just now in 2022. Um, and yeah, and we're just trying to go to the Olympics and get a medal. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was succinct and, and perfect. Thank you. Um, so a question that comes up all the time, uh, or not all the time, but there's a pretty deep thread on the foil forum that uh, the progression project has is is foiling ever going to get old and you know it's only a few years in right now for all of us surf foilers or or wing foilers really you've been doing it for 10 years do you ever see it's going to get old i mean i'm way too addicted to it to think it's going to get old <laughs> so maybe i'm pretty biased to like answer this question but i don't know because there's also like we're seeing it evolve in so many different ways and in so many different disciplines so not only are we seeing it in like the board sports but we're also seeing it i mean america's cup boats have been foiling for 10 years as well and there's still so many there's so many gains still being made and so many improvements still happening in that whole world um so i think that we're just gonna see it continue to grow and grow for many many more years and i think it's also like it's becoming so much more accessible as well I think foiling, I mean, pretty much before winging came along, it was really only like kiters and maybe some surfers doing it back in like, I don't know, 2017, 2018. And we really didn't see like winging or kind of 
more like recreational foiling come around until like 2019 and 2020. Um, and so because it is still so young and it's so new that I think it's still just going to continue to grow and the gear is going to continue to improve. And the I'm sure we'll see many more crazy disciplines and new sports come around um, just because it is so um, it's just so unique and so uh, you can do it in so many different ways. So I think it's just amazing and I'm addicted and I know everybody else is. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone listen or vast majority of people listening are fully foil brained. <clears throat> so 10 years ago, you start getting into foiling. Did you have any idea? What was your first inkling that the sport was going to blossom and spread the way that it has into all of these other disciplines. Did you get an early look at that? Were you as blown away by like that Kyle Lenny video as everyone else was, or were you like, ah, oh, I knew this was coming? Um, I guess I, I kind of, I could see it coming. Like it was something that I was like, when it actually came around, I wasn't all that surprised that it was happening. Um, but I didn't think it would become so like recreational and accessible in a way. I thought it was only going to be like maybe a few of the, the best of the best surfers and like water men and women in the world might be able to do, but now it's becoming, it's so accessible and so many people are doing it. And I mean, like kids are, when they start water sports for the first time a lot of times they're learning to wing and they start foiling right away which is incredible so I think I I kind of saw that it was going to be like a bit of a revolution in like the elite water sports world but I really didn't see it coming at such a recreational and kind of beginner level if that makes sense yeah totally I mean because on the surface it appears to be so dangerous I mean I Dave Kalama, like in 2017, early 2017, was like, you got to get into this. He was down in Costa Rica, and I was just like, it looked like death to me. And, <laughs> you know, I blew a couple years there where I could have been into it earlier because I just didn't, I didn't see it. And I just, I kick myself for that all the time. But, um, yeah, I, I am also surprised that with those first feelings that I had, that it's become something that... Um, you know, so many people are, I, I think the perception is still that it's more dangerous than it actually has proven to be. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I think so too. I think also like if you're kind of unfamiliar with water sports in general, when you first see it, you're like, you're still just kind of trying to wrap your head around it. And when you actually look at a foil, you're like, oh my God, there's like a massive like sword on the bottom of the board how can that be safe <laughs> but I think it's also like now because it's so much more I don't want to say mainstream because it's definitely not mainstream but because it's so much more like recognizable in the water sports world I think there's also like so much more information about it and so many more people do it that everybody like there's kind of it's kind of how kiting was back in the day where like because it was so new and kind of like outcast in a way and edgy then people didn't really know much about it and so when you actually went to go attempt it it was a lot less safe than it was later on when mm -hmm. the sport had grown a little bit so I think now it's like oh people it's a little bit more recognizable and more people are doing it and now we kind of like because we know more about it we know that there's like a more safe way to go about it so yeah gotcha how involved are you in the design process, um, giving feedback and testing with the foils that you're racing on? 
Um, I was, so back in like 2014, 15, 16, 17, like kind of my first like several years um, on the circuit, I guess it was pretty much until um, 2020 almost, um, I was riding Mike's lab um, and okay. Mike, so I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area and Mike just happens to live about 20 minutes from my house um, and he's actually one of my dad's best friends because um, there's a whole group of like, so Mike and my parents are all originally from Czechoslovakia um, and they escaped when it was still under communism and they came to the U.S. Um, in the early 80s. And they all met when they were kind of learning to windsurf in the Berkeley Marina. And so my dad and my mom have been friends with Mike ever since they met in the early 80s windsurfing. Um, and they would go down on trips to Baja together every winter and things like that. So I grew up like around windsurfing and the, that whole scene. But um, Mike started making, I remember riding Mike's first foil that he ever made, which I feel very <laughs> lucky to be able to say. Um, I, but I think it was like in 20, it must have been like 2014, early 2014 or like late 2013. And I remember like it was one of the scariest experiences of my life because it was so unstable. And I mean, I'd ridden like a few high aspect wings at that point, um, but there was nothing like this. And the foil, I remember it was like a very specific, it looked exactly like pelican wings. Um, and it was just wild. And now I remember looking back at it, I was like, oh my God, that was like impossible to ride. Um, and it's crazy, like how it's evolved since then. So I was pretty involved in like the early process of making Mike's foils. Um, and I was like spending summers just testing. I mean, we would go out for a session in the afternoon. I would try five different foils and give my feedback. And so that's how I actually got like a really good feel for foils. Um, and a really just a really good feel for how foil should feel and how you should load it and how to make it go fast. Um, so I really like attribute a lot of my current kind of technique and skills to those early years of like just being able to ride and have access to all these different types of foils um, and help Mike kind of improve them along the way. Um, so I really wasn't involved in any of like the super technical stuff. Like I couldn't tell you the first thing about like the dimensions or what, you know, stuff like that, but I can tell you how it feels and how to make it go fast. Um, and yeah, so I was pretty involved in that process with Mike, um, for several years. And then once the sport became Olympic, which was pretty much at the like beginning of, it was like end of 2018, beginning of 2019. Um, there were, we knew there were going to be some rules about the equipment we would be able to ride. Um, and basically long story short, Mike decided not to get involved in the Olympic equipment because he would have to disclose a lot of, um, intellectual property and information about how he makes his foils that would, you know, that are just trade secrets that he didn't want to share, which is totally fair enough. And I really respected that. Um, so since then now, because I can't ride Mike's foils in racing, um, I've switched to a different company called Levitas, which is based in Austria. Um, and their foils are amazing. I love them. And they've come a long way, even in their own um, company. But, but yeah, so now currently I don't really do a lot of the like R&D, but I still give a little bit of feedback here and there. And um, whenever they ask me to test some stuff out, I'm super happy to do it. But 
now I'm really more focused on like campaigning as a whole and like trying to get to the Olympics as a bigger picture. So I'm really focused on like figuring out how to spend my time and, um, you know, focusing on all these other things. Whereas I have that really good foundation of like technical skills. Um, so now I'm not really that involved in like the R and D anymore. How much of going incredibly fast on a foil has to do with the foil and how much is it the technique? If you, if you had to break that down, what are the limits to speed of a foil? I mean, this is something that, you know, we talk about in the big wave area, you know, the limits to speed and, you know, guys like, um, Laird and Kai both talking about, you know, some really weird things happening at the, the upper boundary of, you know, foil speed. You're one of the folks who's been on the show who's who's spent probably more time there than anyone. So what could you teach us about that upper boundary and, and how foils um, limit or help in that? Yeah, so I guess just for a little bit of perspective, like when we're racing, when we go upwind, we're going at around like 18 to 25 miles per hour, um, depending on the wind speed. And then downwind, we're pushing into the high 30s pretty comfortably. Um, and, but all this of course depends on wind speed. And I think it's also a little, little bit different, um, for me because there's a lot more loads and a lot of like different vectors than there are in surfing. Um, because essentially I'm using the power of the kite and taking all of that load and putting it into the foil. Um, and recently we've been using load cells actually to, practice with a little bit to see the loads we're kind of playing with and I only weigh about 70 kilos right now but when I'm my highest loads on a foil are around like 120 kg wow um which is like close to double my weight obviously but that's kind of what we're playing with so a lot of the limitations to speed have come with like balancing how much load you're putting into the foil with also how you're flying the kite and your kite flying technique, because I'll try to explain this in the most simple way possible. Um, when you're going upwind, you want the kite to fly as far forward into the wind window as possible. So you want it to go as high um, upwind as it can. So that means you need to be sheeting out. Um, but if you sheet out too much, then you lose a lot of the load in your foil. So it's a, when you're going upwind, the big game kind of that you're playing is loading the foil as much as possible without keeping the kite too far back in the window, because then you're just going low and fast. You're not going actually against the wind as much as you can. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you're getting to much higher speeds, then the load is getting distributed a little bit differently. And so you're using like a little bit of a little bit more of your body weight and you're using, um, you're kind of playing with your front foot pressure a little bit more. So I guess like, I don't really know what the limitations are, um, to the speed itself. I do think that like the foil surface area and all those dimensions play a big part. Um, because for example, actually a super, low aspect wing has a higher potential top speed um because when you think about like fighter jets versus um mm -hmm. passenger aircraft then that's a much higher potential top speed but then your average speed over 
a longer period of time is going to be a lot slower on a low aspect wing. Um, so I definitely, I also think like, so for example, Levitas makes some wings that are specifically for like speed crossings, um, because for some reason, um, the French really love to do long distance races that happen to be, um, like crosswind. So you're just reaching the whole time. So they make like a special, really small, low aspect wing, um, that's meant for that. Um, so I think it's like, it's a lot of different things. And when you look at all these different disciplines, like they're very similar in a lot of ways, but the way that you're achieving top speed and the way that the loads are getting distributed and the when you get down to like the nitty gritty technical parts of it, they're actually quite different. What you were just talking about there about the differences in how you're positioning the kite upwind and downwind, does that all hold true for winging as well? Is there a lesson here for all of us who wing? I mean, yeah, it is. It's it's the exact same thing, essentially. You're just kind of holding on to the wing instead of being um, attached to it. And I think also the one difference is, like, with winging, your center of gravity is a lot higher. So if you, in theory, like, if you wanted to go faster, then if you have more weight higher and can lean that weight out, then that would also help you go faster because that allows you to, like, place more of the load over the top of the foil and heel over more mm-hmm. um so yeah but a lot of it is very similar i'm trying to visualize all of that right now um so when you are approaching training and and so you have a couple different disciplines i guess surfing winging for you is recreational and then the focus is the kite racing and then where does the um sale gp come in yeah so um kiting yeah is definitely my main focus and then if i want to go foil for fun then i definitely try to go prone or wing um or toe if i happen to be in the in hawaii at the right time with the right people um <laughs> but yeah so i joined the u.s sale gp team at the beginning of 2021 um, as part of their like initiative to get more female athletes into the league. Um, and it was basically, it was a really cool way for me to be exposed to a super professional sailing atmosphere. Um, and I learned a ton from it, not necessarily in like the actual sailing part of it, but in with how the league is run and how, a training day goes and how they use their time and how the resources are allocated. Like, because it was such a professional scene that I'd never really been a part of. It was a really cool way for me to see actually how these professional teams are run and how I can incorporate some of those things into my own campaign. Um, And now I've taken some time away from it just because I really need to just focus on kiting and trying to get a medal in 2024. Um, because it's also like super high risk of injury. And um, especially if you're in the position where the female sailor usually is on board in position six, which is behind the helm. Um, when you're like running across the boat in maneuvers, there is nothing to hold on to. So you're just going for a ride on a roller coaster, <laughs> basically. Um, and so it's just super high risk of injury. And a lot of girls are like spraining ankles and breaking legs and just getting hurt a lot. Um, and because I just am so close to like 
getting the results that I know I can get. I just can't risk injury right now. So I'm really just trying to focus on kiting and um, I wish I could do some more sailing, but at this point it's just not worth the risk. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like where it fits in right now. But in 2021, I was doing it pretty, pretty much for the whole season. What did you bring back? Um, you referenced, you know, the, the way that they train. Um, what did you bring back to your campaign? Yeah. So I think the biggest things were with the time management because, um, I mean, contrary to what a lot of people might think, there is very, very little training time um, before an event because basically the boats are getting um, disassembled and shipped all around the world. And you basically usually only have like maybe two to five days of training before a big event um, or like before one of the regattas. And then you only get two days of racing. Um, so your time on the water is super, super limited and you really have to be specific about how you're going to spend that time, what you want to work on and how you're just going to make the most of it. Um, so I think a big thing for me was like, okay, when I look at the Olympics, it's also a very similar thing because right now, for example, there's 520 something days until the games and everybody is on that same timeline and that that deadline is like the one big equalizer because everybody's on that same deadline. Um, whereas like we all have different amounts of money and resources and um, equipment and those types of things, but time, that's the one thing that everybody has. That's the exact same. And so it's, it's all about just how you spend that time and how you make the most of it and how you figure out what your biggest gains are and how you're going to make the most improvement and progress in that amount of time. So that was kind of like the biggest lesson I learned, I think from being there is like, you really have to be specific about how you use your time and figure out like where your biggest gains are and how you can make those gains in the time that you're given. With that limited amount of time on the boat and then in the event, how much out of water training was going on? Um, were there, were there, you know, basically were you firewalking the training, like uh, breaking down video, looking at data, um, anything like that to facilitate, you know, better training when you do have water time? Yeah, definitely. So, um, one cool thing about SailGP that is pretty different from all the other like professional sailing in the world and all the Olympic sailing in the world too, is that all of the data is shared. Um, so if we would be out for a training session or even during racing and we couldn't get one maneuver right, then we could look at what the Australians were doing in their maneuvers and see all of their numbers like what camera their wing was at, what rake they had the dagger boards at, what the um, what the pitch was of the rudders and all of these things. Um, and so essentially then when we go out for the next section, when for the next session, then we can kind of copy those numbers. Um, and basically our coach at CLGP, his name is Philippe Presti, and he's been Jimmy Spithill's coach for the last few America's Cups. Um, and he's super, super into the data and he's amazing at that. So between events, we would have either week, not quite weekly, but every couple of weeks or so we would have a big meeting with the whole team and we'd be going through some of the data. And 
I, I remember I'd like wake up in the morning in Europe and I would have like hundred messages from our group chat from Philippe who had gone through all of the data overnight and <laughs> was like telling us how we should approach our next, um, next session and the next maneuvers. Um, so that's a really big aspect as well. Um, and it's something I've also taken into my own campaign now because data is something that we work with a lot now. Um, and there are so many things like I was talking about the load cell earlier. We're using a load cell now. Um, and we have a GPS on my board for every single session so we can look at pitch and heel and um, all of those things and just speed and angle and things like that. So it's a really big part of the game now, and it kind of helps you also figure out how to use your time. Um, and usually there's a coach that's kind of helping you with that, but you as the athlete really have to take ownership and take that responsibility and figure out, you know, what parts of the game you can improve in the most. Yeah, you know, that, that's an interesting point there about the coaching. Like I've always thought that the best athletes – and the people who become the best at certain sports are, are not always the same because some people I think are better at self-coaching and there's certain um, disciplines where you don't really get access to coaching. And so being a self-coach, and I assume in um, your kite racing, at least at the beginning, I don't know if you have a coach now, you probably had to you know, break down technique and do a lot of that on your own. Um, has there been a transition? Do you have a coach now? Has there been a transition to offloading some of that to a coach? Yeah. So coaching, I think is a super interesting thing, especially in like the Olympic sailing world. Um, and just in the sailing world in general. And I think that at the beginning for me, yeah, I, I never really had a coach. I would maybe have like I don't know, someone come and help me out a little bit during racing or something, but I never really had proper coaching. Um, but I think it also, I was always very, I was always super competitive one and I was always, I was super athletic and I was very good at looking at someone and being able to copy exactly what they were doing. So, and I just happened to be, I was in the right place at the right time. And those first few years of kiting for me, I was able to go ride with guys like Johnny Heineken and some of the best kite racers in the world at the time that had the best technique. And I could go out and ride with them and copy them and see exactly what they were doing. Um, and so I was really lucky in that sense because I got to have that example right in front of me. And I did have that kind of just innate athletic skill in a way where I could just look at someone and kind of copy them and see how I was doing. Um, but again, in racing, that's really only like half of the game because the other half is all of the, the racing itself, like the strategy and the tactics and figuring out which side of the course to go on. And, um, if there's like a favored side or if the start line is biased, like there were so many of these other things that I really didn't know anything about because I just didn't really have that sailing background, um, that a lot of my competitors did. And so when it came time to trying to get some coaching and to find a coach, I really wanted to get someone that could help me with that at the beginning. Um, I mean, in the beginning, when I say the beginning, I mean, like in 2021, when it kind of officially was Olympic. 
Um, and that could also help me with the technical side of things because I also like, I really needed help with picking equipment and tuning my equipment and figuring out which kites were performing better and which foils were performing better and sanding my foils and all those things. Because like I said before, I'm not a technical person at all. Like I couldn't tell you the first thing about how a foil works, but I know how to ride it and how to make it go fast. Um, so I needed to have someone to come in and kind of help me with those things. Um, and so now I'm actually working with a coach full time. Um, his name is Chris Rashley. He's British. Um, and he was a former moth world champion and he's done a ton of foiling in his life. So he knows a lot about, um, just foiling is really, really good in that area. Um, and now he helps me with a lot of the racing stuff and, um, mostly with the equipment as well. So, and it's a huge, huge job. Um, and now I, I can't imagine doing it without him because he's also, we really work kind of as like a team. I think there's a lot of coach athlete partnerships that are a bit more of like a dictatorship in a way where the coach is like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, this is the, this is where we're going to go train. This is how long we're going to train for. And this is what we're going to work on. Um, whereas like, Chris and I have more of a like teammate type relationship where we work together a lot on like figuring out where we need to train and what we need to work on and how we're going to accomplish that. Um, and so it's nice to be able to work with someone that's like just as committed to you um, and committed to the campaign as you are. Um, and that just helps you kind of with the day to day and the logistics and um self-confidence is a constant battle. So it's someone also just, that is just a second opinion that you trust and um, just helps you kind of stay on top of things and make sure you're doing the right things at the right time. Can we talk about that last point there for a second? I find that somewhat, I don't know, um, startling that someone who is a six-time world champ with all of your accolades and accomplishments could still say that self-confidence um, could be something that needs to even be brought up. Can, can you go through that a little <laughs> bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think there's, it, it comes from a lot of different things in a way, but, um, I think I always like, just as a person, I always felt like I needed to be, <laughs> better at my sport than everyone and I was just always super competitive and needed to be the best in whatever sport I did um and growing up I did like a ton of different sports and I played tennis and water polo and a lot of times I was playing with boys and I always had to beat all the boys that was very important um and <laughs> now it's like okay I still have to I know it's just, it's a constant battle because you're still like, you have these competitors breathing down on your neck and obviously I've won the last six worlds, but you know, everybody else is catching up and they're making huge improvements as well. And there's all these other countries that have, um, pretty significantly better funded programs that are, have been able to go full time early on. Um, and I didn't start like full time training until pretty much a year ago. Um, because I always like was doing school and I had this other stuff going on. Um, so now I'm like taking a leave of absence from college and I'm going to go back and finish my degree later. But now I've kind of been full time for the past year while all these other competitors were, um, 
training full time since like the end of 2018 or something. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, oh, am I still like doing the right thing? And am I still, it's a question that's constantly in my head. It's like, okay, is this actually something that's going to help me, you know, get to where I want to go? And is this actually going to help me become a better sailor? And I think it's like, that is definitely tied to self-confidence, at least for me, because if I'm confident in my training plan and if I'm confident in the steps I'm taking to improve, then I know I can be confident in myself and just in what I'm doing. Um, so it's just a, it's kind of a question of like every day as an athlete, you're trying to figure out how to get better um, and how to stay ahead of your competitors. And if I can't like confidently tell myself that what I'm doing in that moment is the right thing for me, then it's pretty hard to just be confident in yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess that's kind of like where that comes from in a way. Do you feel that at the starting line as well, or more about like the anxiety and preparation for the event? Um, it's definitely more of a preparation thing. I mean, obviously, of course, I still get nervous before a good or before a big regatta. Um, but I've always been like very particular about my preparation. And when I am on the starting line and when like I'm getting ready to race, actually, I always know that I've done everything that I could up to that moment to prepare as best as I could. Um, and that's where I get a lot of my confidence from because like, it's one thing to take confidence from results, but especially in our sport, like there are so many uncontrollable variables, I think more so than in any other sport in the world. Honestly, um, I think there's so many uncontrollable variables. So you really have to be you have to be really careful with interpreting results. Um, and for sure, like I can walk away from a regatta and maybe I won, but if I, if I wasn't like really practicing a new, like starting strategy that I wanted to improve on, or if my like mark roundings weren't the best in the fleet, or if I, if there were some of these points that I, I know could be better then it's a little bit of a, like, Ooh, I wish I had done that better. But then you just like take that into your training plan going forward and you start working on that. Um, and it's not to say like, I don't enjoy the results and the winning. Like I definitely, I enjoy that, but it's not like what fuels me, I guess, if that makes sense. No, so, it makes yeah. ab absolute sense because I think that you can't become the absolute best without loving the process of incremental refinement that, makes you the best, right? Like, and that makes sense then too. Exactly. Where you, you have a race that everyone else would probably be like, oh, that was amazing. But you see the one or two little things that weren't perfect and like, oh, that still needs work. I, I find myself kind of very similar in a lot of things without the accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. Like you have to love the grind and you have to love the boring day-to-day -day repetitiveness and you have to just fall in love with that. And I think like that's where so many of the best athletes come from is like, yeah, the, the results are great and everything, but it comes from like really, really falling in love with 
the grind and the hard work. And I've always like thrived so much in that type of environment. Um, and for example, like I was, I was a swimmer all through middle school and high school. So I swam year round competitively and I had morning swim practices before school, um, at 5:30 AM. Um, and I really like, I thrived in that environment in that routine because I was like, Oh my God, like there is something so satisfying about like having to get up in the morning and like work super hard and grind and then go to bed and be like so tired and know that like maybe the maybe it won't like maybe that process that progress you made in that day isn't going to surface right away but you know like a few months down the road it's going to make a difference um and there's just something so so rewarding in that so it's it's amazing i love it i'm addicted (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it's something i say all the time like in generally, usually in the intro to podcasts, is that I mean, my favorite thing about doing them is that you get this just blast of inspiration from incredible people. And it's really hard to have these conversations and then not walk out and just just be like, dude, I've just been so lazy. I just need to go crush it. I just need to like step it up and go crush it. And I hope that everyone else gets that too. Where do you get your inspiration from? I mean, I get it from talking to people like you. Um, I, I love reading. Um, reading has always been like something I really enjoy doing, especially like at the end of a long day of racing or something where like, you just want to shut your brain off and like, you don't want to think like I turn to reading actually, which is a bit weird because you would think you want your mind to like rest a little bit, but I don't know. There's something of like really relaxing about reading for me. Um, and so I love reading like sports psychology books and like athlete biographies. Like I just read the Lindsey Vaughn, um, biography. It's amazing. I was super pumped after reading that. Um, but I love like just learning more about how like the brain works in a way. And because it kind of helps me think about like how I can make it better. And it also like helps me kind of explain some of the different emotions and like the processes that I experienced myself. Um, and I mean, I have like a sports psychologist that helps me work through this stuff as well. Um, but I love like reading about it too. Um, that I, that's something that really gets me inspired. I think. Um, are you familiar with Stephen Kotler's work on flow? Yes. Yes. I read stealing fire and the rise of Superman. Um, yeah. So we talk about that a lot on the podcast as well. How how does how does that relate to you? And the I mean, one of the things that I really enjoy hearing about is the differences in states between activities. So, you know, like how your brain is processing reality, you know, in the middle of a race versus when you're wing foiling, you know, like what do you think like that that state is like the flow state is and and how do you how do you experience it across the different disciplines and of what you do yeah so i think kiting is pretty unique in this regard because it's such a feel based sport um and same with like i think surfing and there's a few other sports that are similar in this way but i think it's the most feel-based out of all of the other like Olympic sailing classes. Um, And so it takes so much time 
and even more time than I think in any of the other classes to develop your feel. Um, and I think that when you're like in flow, then that's when you're feeling everything the best. Um, because there's so many things going around, going on, like you're going so fast, you still have to be like switched on in terms of like, when you're going around the race course, you always need to pay attention to like where other people are tacking and whether they have a better shift than you or whether they're in more wind. So they they're going faster. So you have to be like really aware of all your surroundings. Um, but I noticed that like when I am able to enter kind of a more flow state, then all of that decision-making just becomes so much easier. And I think it, it's, it really has a lot to do with like, I, I love how kiting feels. And so it's kind of like a, um, like positive reinforcement loop of like, Oh, I love how this is feeling. Like kite feels super good. I feel like I'm going really fast. And then that in turn, like helps me make better decisions. Um, and it helps me like, improve my technique just in that second because I like am enjoying that feeling so much. Um, and it's pretty crazy. I think like there, there's definitely no other thing that makes me feel that way than kiting does. Um, but I definitely, I mean, I feel it when I'm surfing as well. Like I'm not a very good prone surf foiler. Um, I'm terrible at pumping actually. Like I need to work on it a lot, but I think like I start when, when I have those moments, I definitely start to like, feel that as well um and it's super super unique but it's still different from like the way I feel when I'm kiting just because you're like all those sensations are a little bit different um but yeah it's it's super cool I I'm I love learning about this stuff so it's super exciting um yeah I've been on a dive on that now for I don't even know how many years four or five years and it's just it's it's one of those things that's so interesting because it just goes deeper it doesn't feel like there's any like real like tangible answers because everybody experiences it in their own way and i think that's why it's fascinating to ask those questions um which just goes to like that much broader idea that we all just experience reality through our own lens and um there's you know billions of worlds happening simultaneously that we all interact it's like you know kind of interesting um yeah, but, it's mind blowing. <laughs> right. Uh, but thinking about what you were saying there about those feels, the nuanced feels, like that's something that I've been thinking about. I've, I've been doing a lot of like downwinding, spending a lot more time on foil lately. And the sensitivity that that has brought back into like surfing and like just pumping now, where I can feel like a little tip stall starting, you know, I don't even know what percentage before, you know, I would have felt it a year ago but just all the nuanced feels of and the information that the board is giving you the foil is giving you at all times and being able to act on that much quicker it's it's yeah i think that's where the beauty in things lies and is in that like last little you know tenth of a percent of of nuance yeah exactly and a lot of times like in elite competition like that might be the difference between first and second, you know? And I mean, to be fair, like kiting isn't getting quite that close yet. I definitely see it getting that close in the next couple of years or so and going into the games, but it is possible that like 
someone that has had a little bit more time on a foil and that is a little bit more in tune with how it feels and how it should feel when you're going fast and how all of the loads should feel. Um, when they're like on that final reach to the finish line, um, they're going to be a little bit more stable um, in that moment because they're just a little bit more in tune with how the foil is feeling. And they're, they're probably less likely to crash in that second than someone that might be right behind them, but hasn't had as much time and isn't as in tune with it. So it really like, it could come down to those kind of percentages, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. How close to that line of crashing destruction do you want to run in a race? Are you running like red line right up to it the whole time? Or do you give yourself a, a little bit of margin for air and maybe not the exact fastest line, or do you pick and choose based on where you are in the field and the conditions? It, it's all about picking and choosing. I think like sailing as a sport, especially like racing specifically, it's a, it's a big risk management game and you're constantly evaluating situations and determining how much risk you should take in those situations. Um, and so, and it has to be like, it's a split second decision and it has to be kind of second nature for you to kind of evaluate it in that moment and be able to like absorb all of that information and make a decision out of it. Um, but I think like for the most part, you're redlining more in training because you're really, really pushing and you're, you're, that's where you're finding the, the edges and, um, like finding the lines properly. Um, but in, you generally in racing, you would dial back a little bit. Um, but there's still times where like, you know, you can push it. Um, and you know, you can kind of go beyond like your, I don't know, let's say like in training, you're going at 99.9% .9 of your performance. Like that's, that's the speed. And that's like the edge you're going to maybe in racing, you would dial back to like 92, 93%. But then there's certain moments when you're going around the course where you're like, okay, right here, I need to be at 99%. Um, and then that's where your like training really comes in. So I guess that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking through that right now. Um, um, Seafoils, I think on Instagram was one of the people who uh, recommended you come on the show. And he made a comment that you guys have towed in Hawaii together and then he's never seen anyone able to manage speed on a foil like you where other people start getting squirrely you don't is there anything that you can explain about how to manage speed on a foil that we'd be able to understand and um, utilize <laughs> that was a in, great in the surf world I really appreciate that <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm just saying what um, people are telling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of when I'm towing, I'm definitely, I mean, in my experience, I haven't towed like super big waves or anything like with Cole, Kiwana, like Bufoil every now and then. Um, when we were in Hawaii last winter, because I was going to school in Hawaii on Oahu, which was super, super fun. Um, but yeah, I never went out on any of like the super big days. So I don't think I ever like really, really went super fast. Um, but I think the biggest thing is like, it's all about managing 
your weight on top of the board and managing the front foot pressure. Um, because the faster, faster you go, the more the foil is going to want to lift up. So you're going to have more front foot pressure. Um, so the more you can just think about like really staying on top of the board and managing that front foot pressure. Um, that's pretty much like, it's super simple in a way, but once you do get to those speeds that are like really outside your comfort zone, um, then that's when it gets spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was Cole who, who, who asked me that. Yep. I just, I was like, who, who said that over? Um, let's see here. What haven't we touched on that you think would be relevant to, a group of frothy foilers who are into the learning process? Um, actually, someone was telling me to talk. <laughs> I forget who. It was Matt Coast, actually. He told me I had talked to him about foiling a little bit. Yeah. Um, and he was like, oh, you should talk about this because um, it was like very interesting. I forget what it was. Let me let me check his message really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um. Matt's a legend. I love Matt's breakdowns that he does. I need to get him back on the show. Yeah, they're great. I, I love it. I'm like, I think like I've learned more from being in the LAFC group chat about foils than I have in like the five years that I've just been like foiling by myself, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I've learned so much about how foils work just from being in that group chat. It's incredible. Um, what? Oh yeah. So Something I talked to him about was how a smaller foil isn't always faster. Okay, so this was kind of how we talked about a little bit at the beginning where, like, how I said a super low aspect, um, like, foil or wing has a much higher potential top speed but a lower, like, average Mm -hmm. speed over time. Yep. Um, And basically, like... Now what we're thinking about is like when we're race. So there was a big kind of debate in racing um, in the kite racing scene about whether you would want to be riding like a slightly bigger foil that has um, that's like higher aspect, let's say, um, and has a little bit more surface area. So it has a little more lift um, versus a slightly smaller, lower aspect wing. Um, and up until now, the conclusion has pretty much been that you want to have the most lift possible. Um, and a lot of, I mean, it still kind of depends on the conditions, but basically, even if you have a around, around a race course, a slightly bigger, higher aspect foil um, is still going to be faster around a race course than what you might consider like a faster foil to be because for the most part everybody thinks like oh if a foil is smaller in the water then it's going to be faster but it's just not necessarily true because it just kind of depends on like the conditions and it depends on um what your like average speed is over a given period of time um so yeah so that was something that we had talked about where he he had a light bulb moment so I was like oh nice like I'm glad I could teach him something because (laughs) Um, he seems like he knows everything about foils and I've learned a ton from him. So, yeah. Yeah. How much does glide matter in kiting? And cause most of the time when you're powered, I would assume glide is not incredibly important, but then you do have to make turns around, um, buoys or, you know, like the, the, around the course. 
and I assume that you have to have some carry through those turns, at least on a wing you do. Um, how do you look at like glide um, for, for that? Yeah, so glide isn't super important for us just because like most of the lift that we're actually getting is coming from the kite. It's not really coming from the foil. Um, and so we're basically like even when you're tacking and jibing, um, so like when you're doing turns and when you're going around mm-hmm. marks and stuff, you're still getting most of your lift from the kite. Um, but there are still like some moments and it also depends on how powered you are because I mean, as you might know, like we have four different kite sizes that we can use in racing and you, I mean, you kind of have to figure out like how to be the most efficient on each kite size. So you have a pretty big wind range on each kite. Um, so for example, on my 15 meter kite, I usually ride my 15 from when it's about 14 knots until 18 knots. Um, but if I get outside that wind range, let's say the wind suddenly dies and I'm stuck out on the water with my 15 meter kite, but it's only 10 knots. Um, those would be the times when I'm underpowered and I would want to have a little bit more like lift from the foil. Mm -hmm. And that's when like the glide would come in a little bit more. Um, and there's some like kind of techniques you can do in your turns that do help you kind of like take advantage of the glide. Um, and actually like when I started winging and when I started surfing, I got a lot better at pumping and I could even like kite in a lot less wind and do turns in a lot less wind because I had kind of learned how to pump and like take advantage or take more advantage of like the glide that was available in my wing. Um, so for example, like when there's super light wind and you're on a 21 meter kite, but it's only like three knots or something, which has happened to me before. Um, <laughs> you when really you really do that in three <laughs> knots, that's possible. Yeah. I mean, you can't like get up in three knots, but a lot of times, like if you're already up and you're generating your own apparent wind, then you can kite in like three knots. Our, wow. our minimum wind speed though, is like six knots, um, for racing, which that's like wild. I can get up in pretty easily. Um, yeah, but usually like a lot of times, even if it's, if it's a minimum six knots, then you have lulls of a lot less. So you might have lulls of like three or four knots. Um, so you still have to be able to like make maneuvers in those conditions. Um, and a big thing that like winging and surfing has helped me with a lot is with tacking actually, because there's like a little, you kind of like do a pump into the maneuver, um, to get yourself really high on the mast so that when you're exiting the maneuver, um, you have more like distance on the mast for the, which is like time for the mm-hmm. kite to re-engage power kind of, it's a bit complicated, but like, it's definitely, there's a lot of like similarities in how all of that works. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, that's one of the things that you do like downwinding a lot. If you're, you have some power and you're about to have to exit and you, you get real high on the mast or um, pumping back yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Get real high is like you hit bumps, use those as like free level ups. Then you have this like long glide afterwards. It's funny because I was the exact opposite. So I've never really done wind sports, but I'm lifelong surfer and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty decent like pumping around and whatnot. And so when I was learning to wing and I still like cheat all the time, I can pump for a long time. So, you know, if, if I'm jiving or tacking and it's like light i'll just pump you know and just take my time get the wing put up and then then power back up oh that's great (laughs) yeah it's a great skill to have though and like that's the thing you can like still foil in super light wind condition so i think it's like it helps your 
it helps overall for sure. So, yeah. yeah. My, my favorite thing now is I ride like basically my downwind board on the wing all the time with a pretty big foil, but then I can ride these really small uh, wings, which is awesome because then when you're like depowered, like the wings pretty out of the way. It's like a nice cheat code. Oh, that's the best. Yeah. I hate winging with a big board. Like it's the worst thing ever. I, I ride if I can, like if it's windy enough, then I'll ride like a 20 or a, yeah, like 28 liter board. Really? Um, and I just take, yeah, I just take a big wing and then I have, I, when I wing and when I surf, I have the lift 120. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll use that and it's like, oh my God, it's so much fun. It's so much better than like having a big board because it's like, it's so much more maneuverable and you can like pump around more and oh, I love it. Yeah. And that's a great foil too. How does the speed yeah. on like the lift 120 compared to your race foils? Um, I actually get like nervous that I'm going to stop foiling a lot because I'm going so slow. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. That's a pretty fast foil in the surf world. I know. Yeah. No, I'm always (laughs) like, I'm always like, Oh my God. Like, why is this it? Like, (laughs) how come I'm not going any faster? No, it's a, it's a great foil that like, I, I, I really, I love that foil and it's super maneuverable. And I think it like, it really does a good job of like balancing glide and pumping ability with like still being able to turn and stuff because that's something that like Mike has actually struggled with a lot in his foils is like his foils are really like the the wing foils specifically Mm -hmm. um they're really good at like gliding and pump pretty easy to pump um but it's like taken him a while to figure out how to make a foil that can turn really well and now I think he's like starting to like finally get some and I mean they're super good Bonnie and Kenny obviously can are superhuman and they can turn any foil, but, um, so they make it look easy, but, um, yeah, I think he's like finally starting to figure it out. So yeah, it's cool. That's awesome. Um, let's see here. I do some questions, um, kind of, uh, like a series of questions. Um, if you don't mind doing those with me and then we'll wrap it up. It's about an hour right now. How are you doing on time? I'm great. Yeah, I'm okay. all good. So h- how do you define success? Oof. That is like the question of all questions. <laughs> um, to me, success is um, if I can walk away knowing I've put every bit of my time and energy and resources into a certain performance, um, then that to me is success. How does success relate to happiness for you? Um, it, it has a lot to do with happiness, I think, because I mean, obviously I think I, a lot of my happiness comes from like just enjoying the process a lot more, but I think that feeling of like putting all of your effort and energy and time into like one particular performance and then walking away from that. And it's like that feeling of relief you kind of get after it. it's like, Oh my God, I did it. Like that was incredible. And obviously if you like win in that situation, it's even better. But I think like, I definitely get a lot of happiness, like from that feeling. You know, thinking about this right now, one thing that I'd like to touch on is, and I think this is, I think there's so many people who have moments 
like you probably had when you were debating leaving school to pursue a dream. Um, and I, you know, and in my experience talking to people who have made that decision, I haven't ever heard a lot of regret and maybe it's because of my sample size. Maybe it's because of the people that I'm talking to, but you know, I, I still don't see it. People who've taken a shot and, and usually it ends up for the best. Can you kind of talk through making that decision and how hard it was, or do you feel like you maybe made that decision earlier on and you know, the, the leaving was just, uh, uh, wasn't really the inflection point. Maybe the inflection point happened earlier, but the, the strength, the self-confidence, um, to be able to do that. Yeah, I think like it was definitely, it wasn't an easy decision. And I think that like it had been something I was thinking about for a while and my original plan had been like, okay, I'll do two years of school and then I'll take a year off to train for the Olympics full time, hopefully go to the Olympics and then I'll like finish two years later. Um, but then because COVID happened and I was able to do like all of my classes online um, and take classes in the summer remotely and stuff, then I was like, oh, well, it kind of makes sense to just like keep going. Um, but it was kind of already in the back of my mind that I knew I was going to have to like go full time at some point. It was just kind of a matter of when I think. Um, and then obviously like you always have certain, certain plans for certain things, but things don't always go to plan. Um, and then like COVID happened. So then I was like, okay, well I might as well just like, I'm still able to, I mean, this is now in 2021. Like I was still able to travel and still do school remotely um which was super hard in its own because like if i was taking a 9 a.m class in hawaii then in europe where i was for most of the year it was a 9 p.m class so i was like up from 9 p.m to midnight doing my classes um but then it was like i knew i had i i know i'm a really thoughtful person and i really like thought through the decision and i'm like talk to people about it. I talked to people I trust and some of my mentors. And, um, I felt like I, I could take a lot of confidence in that decision because I knew I had like really thought it through. Um, and then once I did it, I definitely had a moment of like, Oh my God, like, is this the right thing to do? Because then like in the summer of last year, it was my first time, like not winning regattas because basically since like late 2016 through the beginning of 2022 I won every single kite foil event that I competed in um yeah <laughs> that's so rad um and, and then I suddenly though like summer 2022 comes around like I I stop school I'm not in school anymore I'm full-time training and suddenly I like start not winning events <laughs> so I was like oh my god like what is going on like this is not great timing for this um so you definitely like that's the thing like self-confidence is a constant battle it's like am I actually doing the right thing like is this actually what I should be doing right now um or is this like something that's actually going to get me to where I want to go and get like accomplish my goals so um then I was like, okay, well, I really have to like, it was like three regattas in a row that I didn't win in the summer, which had like never happened to me before. So then, and then the world championships were in October. Um, so at the end of the summer, I was like, okay, I really need to like make some changes to what, to my program and to my campaign to really like, you know, finish off the year strong at the world championships, um, which I was like successfully able to do, but it's still like, you have these thoughts of like, 
am I doing the right thing? You're constantly questioning yourself. But if you can like take some confidence from knowing that like you've really thought through the decision and you know that you really want to do this one thing, then that kind of helps make that process easier, I think. Do you practice like visualization? Do you mind surf the races? Mind surf, that's what I like. <laughs> Everything's surfing to me. Um, yeah. the, 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 the races before races. I mean, are you dreaming like actually putting yourself, you know, in, in the Olympics right now? Is that, is that something that you do? Um, I don't visualize that much actually. Like I think I should start doing it more because I've honestly, like I've always been so bad at it and I've never been able to like really visualize racing. Um, and so it's something I, I need to work on. And it's one of the things where like, I know it because it's something I'm bad at. I need to like, just take some time to do it. So I'm going to work on it more this year. Um, but I, I'm, I do a lot more like journaling and mindfulness because a lot of times I'll notice, and I, I like to meditate. Um, cause a lot of times I'll notice, like I have a lot on my mind and I'm really like stressed out about something or I have like a big regatta coming up. So, and a lot of times I need to just like quiet my mind. Um, and so if I just like write about it or journal about it, then that helps like ease some of the pressure in my mind. Um, and then if I can like take a few minutes before bed or something just to like meditate a little bit and just focus on my breathing, then that also helps a lot. So I'm a bit more in like that those things are a little bit more in my routine right now than like visualizing is, but I definitely mm-hmm. plan to get visualizing more into my routine. Cause I know it's super beneficial. I, I kind of feel like they're one in the same, right? It's like forward looking intention maybe. Yeah. 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 Um, I think like, the, the goal, I think the goal of it a lot is kind of the same because you're just kind of focusing, you're quieting your mind and focusing it on something in particular, whether it's like your breath or, you know, something you want to envision. Um, but I don't know, I've always struggled so much with visualizing racing because I think a lot of it is because like every race is so different um, just from like wind conditions to sea state to like how the start line is oriented, how the course is oriented. Like everything is always so different that it's really hard to like envision kind of what it'll be like. Um, so those are like, that's like a difficulty that I've had with it that I'm trying to like figure out how to work around. Do you do like mental playback? Like I do that a lot. If I have a breakthrough or something that just doesn't feel right, in a session, sometimes, you know, almost like a meditation, but, but not really because I kind of just lay down and like just resurf different portions of the session over to kind of like, see if I can explore specific moments. Sometimes you figure stuff out sometimes you don't, I mean, for me anyways, um, do you utilize any of that? Is that something for you? Um, not really, mostly because like, if there were any like key moments on the water that I would want to like go over, then we just go over that with my coach, like in a debrief after racing. Um, and if there was like something that happened that I would like to go over more or like just talk about, then that's just something I bring up like in a meeting session. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't really, I try not to like delve on things like that too much i think like i'd rather just kind of take it and move on to the next thing if that makes sense because it's also with racing like 
you have such a quick turnaround and if you have a bad day of racing then you're like okay tomorrow is like a new day we're gonna have completely different conditions it's gonna be like everything is always so different that you really have to be able to just like switch your brain around um and continue to the next day or the next race um so I feel like I'm a lot more geared toward just like moving on to the next thing rather than like thinking too much about what has already happened. Gotcha. I guess I use it more for, you know, sometimes when you're foiling, you'll do something unexpected, but there was a unique, very cool feel to it or something that, yeah. you know, went better than you thought. And so I kind of use it in those moments, you know, sometimes I'm lucky enough to have it on video and then I break down the video, but if I don't, then I kind of, um, mind surf through it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. I'll yeah. try it. <laughs> uh, um, outside of training for the Olympics, um, what motivates you or, or where does your motivation come from? Ooh, um, I think it's, it's honestly just like trying to be the best athlete I can be and like best version of myself that I can be. I think it really just comes down to that. Have you thought past the Olympics at all? Um, I have a little bit. Um, it usually like when I start thinking about it, I start thinking about like maybe doing the next Olympics, <laughs> like LA 2028. <laughs> Um, since we'd be kiting in Long Beach right next to Seal Beach, <laughs> Seal Beach Jetty, um, that's where I learned to surf foil. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, like life after, yeah, like the Olympics, I've, I honestly have no idea. Like, I love the idea of just kind of like trying to do more water sports and like trying to get better at winging and at surfing and trying like stop downwinding and whatever else might be like around at that time. Um, cause I'm sure things will continue to evolve, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely don't see myself like going into the real world anytime soon. I definitely want to stay in the water sports world for as long as possible. <laughs> when you do go into the real world, what, what do you think you would want to do? Hopefully you don't have to, <laughs> but if you had to. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So I'm getting my degree in marketing um, from the University of Hawaii. So maybe I would want to do some kind of like sports marketing um, or just something in like that realm. But I really have no idea. I also like I love the idea of like becoming a sports psychologist and like helping other athletes like with the mental game. Um, but I have no idea. It's I it's still a long ways ahead, thankfully. So, <laughs> yeah. I think you'd be great at that, just based on this conversation and knowing how you're getting a small glimpse into how your mind works. I think you'd be really good at helping people um, train and focus. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. It's an option, maybe, in the future. <laughs> we'll see. It seems like you have a lot of passion for it, though. Yeah. Well, I think it's like, it's super interesting, I think. And I enjoy learning about it a lot. And yeah. Do you find yourself like that introspective in other areas of your life or mostly just around the psychology of like sports? Um, yeah, I'm pretty, 
I'm very, very, like, thoughtful, and I really, like, think through things a lot before I do anything, um, which can be a little bit tricky on the race course when you're trying to make split-second decisions, but um, for the most part in life, it works well for me. But, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty introspective, and I think a lot about, like, what's going on and, um, like, yeah, what, what's happening and how I can, like, improve myself through those things. I was just thinking, I wonder if you are the guest on the show who has more miles on foil than anyone else. It's quite possible. I bet it is. I bet <laughs> I it be is. surprised. <laughs> That's kind of cool. I mean, you might be able to uh, – Dave Kalama is probably up there. It's probably between you and Dave. Yeah, probably. I know because, like, I mean, we we do pretty big distances on foils. We do, like, in a two-hour training sessions, I do, like, 30 miles usually. And if I do a bunch of those sessions over, like, weeks and weeks and weeks and years, like, it's a pretty substantial number. I you wonder probably, what it would be actually. You probably got. You think there's many people in the world who have more miles on foil than you? Um, maybe just like a few other kite racers, but probably not many. That's pretty amazing. I think we're just gonna go ahead and claim that, as, <laughs> as you, you now officially yeah. have more miles on foil than anyone else. I'll take it. That's awesome. Well, what do you want to leave folks with? First off, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic and. I am just I, I super stoked for you and your, your journey. I think it's amazing. Um, and, and what do you want to leave folks with? Words of wisdom or whatever? It's your floor. Oof. I'm still, I'm not sure I'm that wise. I still have a long way to go. I just turned 22, so we're, we're still making progress on that front. But, <laughs> yeah, but um, I, don't think that, I don't think it's about age, right? It's about like experience and, and accomplishment that's true. in a lot of ways. It, it is about experience. Right? Yeah, that's so. very true. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I guess if, like, if anyone is keen to follow along, follow my journey, see what's happening, then um, you can check out my website or my Instagram. I'm pretty active on both of those. Um, try to stay, keep people updated on what's happening and how things are going. Um, this year is a pretty big year um, just because this is the year like where I'll actually be qualifying for the Olympics. Um, and this is like the, we already are kind of in within the Olympic trials process. Um, but yeah, basically by like August, um, if all goes well, I'll know whether I've qualified for the Olympics. So if you're keen on like following more of that and checking it out, then um, definitely follow me on Instagram and check out my website. And, and yeah, give, give both of those. What's your Instagram handle? Um... My Instagram is the life of Daniela. Um, and my website is daniellamorose.com. So yeah, you can check it out. Awesome. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for doing this. I super appreciate it. I think everybody's going to love it. Um, and good luck. I just, it's going to be really cool to watch the journey unfold. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was super nice to chat. Um, and yeah, maybe see you around the, the foiling world. This is the Progression Project Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonson.